Welcome to Off the Cuff with Congressman Jared Huffman. As a representative for California's 2nd Congressional District, Off the Cuff is my opportunity to talk with you about important issues and to introduce you to interesting people from the 2nd District and beyond. It's unfiltered, it's direct, and it's honest. It's Off the Cuff with me, Congressman Jared Huffman. For this podcast, I have a test for my listeners. I'm going to give you a little tune that goes like this. Dun, 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 dun. And if you are ready to hear the silky tones of a guy named Michael Krasny, then you're one of the thousands of people in the Bay Area and around the country that regularly tune in to Forum, like I do whenever I can. And I've got really good news for you because... The one and only Michael Krasny is our guest on today's podcast. Michael, dun, 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 dun. I didn't know you had this talent, Congressman, <laughs> being able to uh, bring that tune to bear. But congratulations on that, and I'm delighted to be here with you. So you're familiar to thousands and thousands of people I represent and other people around the country because you've been at this for a long time. How long have you been doing Forum? Be 25 years in February, although we just celebrated a 30-year anniversary of the program. The program began five years before... I took the helm, and uh, it was a wonderful anniversary party. Now I'm going to have to have people crank something up for 25 in February. (laughs) Well, I'm going to ask you about some of the memorable uh, interviews and episodes that you've had over those years. Uh, But first, there's something that people may not realize, and that is you're my constituent here in the beautiful 2nd Congressional District. Uh, Tell us about uh, why you are proud to call this place home. Well, I'm also proud to call you my congressman, a congressperson, a representative in the House of Representatives. Uh, I came to Marin in 1970 as a young professor at San Francisco State, and I'd heard it was beautiful here, and people were talking about marvelous Marin and tunnels that you drive through with rainbows and everything, and uh, (laughs) I I really didn't know what to expect, but uh, rented a home. I had two dogs, so it was hard to find a place in Santa Venetia. Um, It was a big house, and uh, in those days the rent was reasonable for a college professor, and um, became very acclimated with the county and felt very much at home here. It's an unusual place, I don't have to tell you. Each community has its own character and its own sort of uh, earmarks. Uh, I think it's different to live in Novato, obviously, than it is in Sausalito or in Mill Valley than it is in Larkspur even. But I loved the communities and felt very much at home, as I said, and the weather was great. I'd go into San Francisco and come back here and feel the warm weather. And there was a lot to uh, kind of lampoon and have fun with, too. You know, <laughs> you, you have a good memory about this. You remember Sarah oh. McFadden's The Cereal? Cereal, Martin Mull and Cereal, of all course. All that yes. kind of stuff that was yeah. making fun of all the sort of... Uh, peacock feathers and hot tubs. Yeah, NBC and, yeah. did that show uh, about peacock feathers and hot tubs. And in fact, <laughs> I started a radio program at KTIM, which many Marinites remember. I don't want to get too esoteric here about Marin, but uh, it was called Beyond the Hot Tub. And um, <laughs> it you know, if I hadn't already named my podcast, I think I would call it Beyond the Hot Tub. <laughs> well, it was a good name at the time. It seems a little loopy to me now, but it was fun. But you know, there are a lot of loopy people here. A lot of uh, people who are looking for enlightenment and are seeking it in so many different ways, and yet people that you feel, at least I feel a good deal of affection for, and people who care. And it's uh, it's been a good home for me and my family. Have you got a favorite place uh, north of the Golden Gate Bridge? Well, a favorite place, you mean uh, to hang out, to walk? Mm-hmm. I just, uh, actually, uh, here in my uh, talks, uh, just got done doing a walk at Drake's Landing, where I w- used to walk with my dog all the time, and then the dog died, and 
this is about three years ago, and somebody actually said to me, where's your dog today? Which brought you know my heart wow. into the game. Um, it's very difficult to have a dog when you're living the kind of life that I'm living as much as I'd love to have one. But I walk a lot at Blackie's Pasture and um, walk a lot uh, throughout the hills of Mill Valley and um, actually walk in Sausalito too because uh, mm-hmm. I try to walk every day if I can. I think about the amazing interviews that you've had over the years. You've had presidents from like Barack Obama and, and Jimmy Carter. You've had Rosa Parks, Cesar Chavez, Newt Gingrich, Robert Redford. I mean, an incredible range of iconic individuals. Is there an interview that you've done where you were totally surprised by what you got out of your guest? Yeah, there have been a number of those um, because I kind of follow my curiosity. I don't come in necessarily with a map, although it's a somewhat preconceived notion of where I might want to go. Um, And people do surprise you. I mean, sometimes they surprise you by the mood they're in or by the way they look on a page when you read them as a a novel. I've had a lot of novelists on and then the way they come off, you know, as people. Uh, And there's that unpredictability because it's a live program. There's no net. Mm -hmm. It's like what we're doing now. There's no editing going on. And uh, I will sometimes be taken by surprise. I'll sometimes feel uh, I'm almost... uh, shocked at things that happen. I've had moments, you know, I've been in it long enough that people have, just in terms of some bad behavior and some almost really wonderful, unexpected, angelic behavior, you know, you have those moments. And um, I wrote a book Can you think of a bombshell or two that came uh, during any of those interviews? Well, we recently did an interview with uh, one of your uh, legislator colleagues, um, uh, the senator from Nebraska, and... um, Ben Sass. Ben Sass. Uh, and he wrote a pretty good book, actually, uh, about good values and so forth. And, I, you know, don't try necessarily to get into partisan politics, but I'd read an interview he did in Mother Jones. And the interview Mother Jones uh, actually was talking about his saying that the Affordable Care Act was the worst piece of legislation in American history. So, you know, my eyes bugged out when I saw that. Mm-hmm. And I naturally had to ask him. And he said, I never said that. And... Um, I said, I'm sorry, Senator, but, you know, it's in text. He said, I don't care if it's in Mother Jones or whatever. I never said it. Wow. Well, to the credit of my senior editor, Dan Zoll, he comes running in. They recorded it in Mother Jones. So we went to the recording. And uh, it was a bit of a shock for him to hear it, I think. And he had said those words. He had said those words, yeah. Uh, Although he kind of tried to temper them somewhat by saying, and remember, he had just come off of Bill Maher's program where he had said some, uh, he had not said anything, and he went under a lot of heavy criticism because Maher used the N-word, and uh, right. people thought the senator should have spoken up about that. So he said, obviously, there's, there's much worse legislation, you know, in terms of segregation and those kinds of things, he said. But I, I meant at the time, you know, uh, it seemed to me <laughs> that it was the worst piece of legislation. And uh, so that was a kind of shock. You don't mean to necessarily... Um, bushwhack people or yeah, get them off their yeah. game. I mean, what, what I'm looking for is light and information mainly, although some controversy you obviously can't avoid. With politicians, it's always good. I mean, I can have you on, for example, and people will think, even though I'll throw you a couple of rough questions, and, you know, oh, he's this congressman, he's just, you know, stroking him, he's just, you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. But it's it goes with the game, uh, with with actually the, the, the career that I've had. Um, I'll talk about the Middle East, for example, and um, I'll almost time it in terms of Israelis and Palestinians equal time and be as rough or as free-willing with both of them, the representatives from both, and I'll get off the air. And you're going to get heat from both sides. Exactly yeah. right. Uh, people will yeah. say, you know, you're a Zionist stooge, you're a Palestinian right. puppet, because they have their narratives so rigid in their heads that it almost doesn't matter right. where you go with it. And as 
even-tempered and as fair-minded as you can possibly be. What's the most memorable interview or guest that you've ever had? You know, that's a tough question for me because there have been so many. I, re- I recently was inducted into this Broadcasters Hall of Fame. Congratulations. We're Thank proud you. of you. They had, a, they had to take a, create a separate category, a talk host for these living legends. And I think people in public radio had been kind of given the short shrift. So it was nice to be in there with uh, the general manager at KQED, Joanne Wallace. But I found myself uh, reflecting. In fact, Joanne Wallace, in her introduction, said Michael has had over 10,000 hours on the air. And... To have, and, and that's not even counting when I was in KTIM in San Rafael or when I did commercial radio, which I did for a few years before I, as Dan Shore said, found the promised land of public radio. But there's something about doing um, all of those hours that, I mean, I've been privileged to interview not only some of the leading cultural and political figures of our era, as you said, but some of the greatest novelists and um but also extraordinary people who are, you know, doing work that people in in this whole public service that we try to provide uh, ought to know about, ought to be educated about, and so it becomes and, and some of the greatest scientists and Nobel laureates and mm-hmm. so forth. So how do you say this is right. the most memorable right. interview I've had? Um, but things come to mind often, not so much about the, the lionized and the famous and the icons. I mean, obviously those people are a real privilege and and exciting to interview usually but also people who are doing just unbelievably selfless work. You know, I think about these grandmothers in Oakland who, during the crack cocaine uh, Mm -hmm. epidemic early in my career, I was interviewing, and they were taking care of crack babies just full-time while the mothers were in prison. Uh, Or I think about some of these uh, people who are in Doctors Without Borders or who go out, journalists who put themselves at risk on a daily basis, or people who are doing, you know, unbelievable, you know, we share, I think, strong... Uh, concern about the environment, uh, you and I, and who are are really making a difference. Uh, I mean, these are the people I have, you know, the wonderful uh, privilege, as I said, of interviewing just day after day after day. And it's hard when when people say, who is your greatest interview? I mean, you didn't put it that way. You said most memorable, which is really a different category. But it it always strains my mind. I don't mean to be evasive, but I I can't. uh, I have to think in so many different categories that it's well. It's great that that you would put the uh, unknown uh, grandmother in Oakland who's doing heroic things on the same uh, level uh, as you think about all these interviews as Rosa Parks and Barack Obama. Um, well, those you, are people. You see the greatness in in a lot of people. I, I see the greatness in people who are great people too, like Cesar Chavez and mm-hmm. Rosa Parks and uh, Barack Obama. Although I was certainly critical of him during his, uh, he wasn't perfect. Years, uh, no, hardly. Um, but there were things I admired in him, uh, and certainly uh, that came across. I hope in the broadcast, but so did the criticism. And you know, when I think about people who do selfless work, when I started out here in Marin at KTIM, I interviewed Hospice of Marin people, mm-hmm. and I was just blown away by the kind of commitment and the sacrifice of self that many of these people had. I couldn't do that. I couldn't, you know, sit at people's bedsides hour after hour, caring for them, tending for them. I have enormous admiration for people like that. I want to ask you about the media. Uh, I've got a bill to address something that I'm very concerned about, and that's media consolidation. Which we talked about when you were last on. So talked a little bit about little Sinclair promo broadcasting. About that yeah. yeah, that conversation. Uh, Sinclair is gobbling up uh, radio and television stations all over the country with, with a very strong uh, right-wing political bent to their uh, operations. 
I'm concerned about it. I've, I've dropped a bill to try to help address this problem. Why is it so important that we do something about that? And, and where does uh, public broadcasting fit into uh, this continuum? It's important to do something about that because um, we've learned, I think, some tough lessons about monopolization, uh, especially where the media is concerned and how that kind of uh, hegemony can uh, lead to... Um, uh, some, some, not so much partisanship as bias and even bigotry. Uh, and it used to be, you know, that you had to do public service uh, stuff in, in, in commercial radio, and then everything went across the board. And, for example, in the world that I'm in, in talk radio, the gold star, the load star, I should say, was Rush Limbaugh. And Rush Limbaugh had a successful track record. I mean, he's a good performer, and that's what I see him as. And he could be very funny sometimes, but there was suddenly this dominance of the market by right-wing radio. There were attempts, you know, like Air America to mm-hmm. counter it and so forth. Uh, but there, there's really a sense of um, domination that puts a skewed political view. And I think, you know, uh, I don't want to sound partisan here, but I think that uh, hosts on the right wing have had a lot to do with the way the country has gone uh, and mm-hmm. the way some of the political... I'm not talking about our cocoon here in Northern California, mm-hmm. but I'm talking about the country at large. So there's that to consider. There's also um, what we do, by contrast, is public service. It's not to, to give us a self-righteousness, but it's not entertainment. It's not uh, simply to get people to bang their dashboards or get them loaded with all kinds of often misinformation and uh, questionable facts, which I think go on a lot in commercial radio, and I'm talking about someone who worked in that world of ABC for a number of years at KGO Radio in San Francisco. So legislation struck me, and I, I looked at your bill as a good thing and, and certainly uh, merited, and I hope you can get it through. But how you can get it through a Republican Congress who certainly sympathizes with the Sinclairs and people like that, yeah. it's going to be difficult. Yes, it is. Um, so here's something uh, unique about you, Michael. Uh, you are this national, international uh, media uh, star, and yet you don't have a Twitter account. Yeah, I've resisted it. Uh, and part of it is why it has to do with the fact that I think if I were tweeting, I would, because I do some of this on Facebook, and I would do even more of it on Twitter, because I read Twitter, and we have a Twitter account with my radio program. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I know myself, and I, and I know if I were tweeting, I'd be tweeting all kinds of opinions. Uh, I mean, it's not to say that I'm above writing yeah. like editorials or editorializing on the air, but it would be, for some reason, it's easier to resist on Facebook, you know, my own strong opinions, which I have. You know, there's some people who uh, seem to think that I'm free of those sort of dogmatic or self-righteous opinions, but I'm not. And it serves me better to keep them away from my journalistic practice. Twitter is, strikes me as kind of an inherently snarky medium. Exactly. It, That's also part of the, what I think I'm afraid I would succumb to. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. Um, so maybe it's good for you that you've stayed on the uh, Facebook where when you choose to express yourself, you can do it in depth and, and try at least to set a better tone than 140 characters. Yeah, and there's more ability with more than 140 characters, although they may be doubling that now. For some. For, for, for example, yesterday out. I was able to, uh, Ishiguro uh, won the Nobel Prize in Literature, and I was able to talk about that uh, at, in Facebook in, in a tempered way, because last year somebody put a microphone in front of me on a TV show and said, what do you think about Bob Dylan getting the Nobel Prize? And I said, 
it's a little bit out of sorts with what the Nobel Prize has always been. I, mean, I don't want to take away from his gifts as a troubadour or uh, certainly as an agent of social change, and I said those things on, on Facebook, but Ishiguro is much more of a, an artist uh, in terms of novel writing, and that had been the tradition of, some people think, fine, you know, you broke with that tradition, it's a good deal, but uh, I had concerns about it. I th I, and at the time, I said there are plenty of novelists who are as deserving, if not more, than our great troubadour, Dylan, and I mentioned Ishiguro, and not a little bit of uh, oracular moment or something, um, I mentioned Philip Roth, I mentioned you know, a number of other novelists that I had a great deal of respect for. So I could put something like that on Facebook, and it, it expresses a deep part of me, and mentioned that I had interviewed Ishiguro a few times and found him you know, a terrific guy to talk to. But Twitter? <laughs> yeah, right. Where do you begin? Uh, let's uh, pretend that we're on forum today. There's always so much going on on any given day. Uh, this is a, a heck of a moment to, to be in the public arena. And uh, it, it's one of the things that is kind of energizing about my job right now is I, I have this feeling that there is historic consequence to all of these things that are probably going to come to a head under my watch in Congress. What would we be talking about today or this week if we were on forum? Well, let me just respond to what you were just saying because... Um, we were um, not a ratings leader, uh, and now we are. And one of the things that I think that boosted our ratings and gave us a big spike was 9-11. But we have also seen, and, and we've been you know, top of the heap uh, almost since then, but what's kept us, uh, and I'll just say this baldly, you know, uh, on top now is Trump. Mm -hmm. uh, and because it's almost as if people are insatiable to keep up with him, and the news is constantly changing, and there's a new tweet every day. And When you mix it up, you don't just talk all Trump all the time. No. It would be, I think, uh, dull, and it would be uninteresting to talk Trump all the time, although sometimes um, it seems like that's what people are doing. I was at a dinner party last night, and we were commenting on the mm -hmm. fact that you know, we, we got off on, on that subject, and people just do. You know, somebody said, you know, why do we always get up talking about I know. Trump? Something tells me he wants us to do that, too. Yeah. You know, it's almost as if he's running an, uh, I don't say this, well, I don't know, maybe it sounds pejorative, but, you know, running another kind of reality show and wants to keep things mm -hmm. in suspense. What did he say right. the other day at this military dinner? This could be the calm before the storm. Right. Stay tuned. And uh, why you are people, you know. Tune in next week. Got to keep these large audiences, got to keep them listening or keep them watching. It is the mind of, you know, a TV producer and right. so forth. But... Is he talking about something obliquely? Is he saying, you know, something that has some substance to it uh, or not? Remember, you know, with Comey, he said uh, maybe, you know, he was recorded and it turned out to be just a sham. Yeah. And the same thing could be true here because you just don't know with this president. You don't, you don't know. know, but words matter and uh, markets crash and wars are started based on words yeah. from uh, leaders. So uh, it's troubling. And uh, I'm sure we'll keep talking about Trump uh, for as long as he's around. So how about a, a happier subject? We've got a holiday coming up on Monday, and it's a bit of a controversial one. I bet you've covered it on one of your shows, Columbus Day. You mean Indigenous Peoples Day, don't you? Exactly. <laughs> well, there's the controversy and the, <laughs> the pith of the controversy. Uh, you know, it gets us into all of this, uh, really, whether we like it or not, all this debate about uh, should Robert E. Lee be in a statue, and you know, how do we, re how, how do we deal with our history? Um, and Don't we have an obligation to fix our history and keep trying to get it right? Well, if it means dismantling, you know, uh, Lincoln who wanted to send slaves to Liberia or George Washington who was a slaveholder or Thomas Jefferson who was a slaveholder, I don't know. And we know? need to tell that story. Uh, <laughs> but we, we have a lot of twisted history, don't we? 
We do, and we continue to have twisted history. So what do you do with that twisted history? Do you try to gussy it up and say, look, this was a slaveholder, so we're going to have to maybe edit the Declaration of Independence because it was written by a slaveholder? I mean, it, it, it's worth debating, let me put yeah. it that way, and that's why we have had debates well, we've, on it. We've reconciled to a degree with the slaveholders who actually remained loyal to the United States and didn't join an insurrection against their country to defend slavery. But uh, it's it's messy. It's a messy history. It's a good way to describe it. It is messy. And what do you do when you're in a mess? You try to sort things out as best you can, which is principally what we try to do on the radio when we get into these controversies. The best thing you can do with this is to have a panel, uh, not screaming at each other like you'll find on Fox or in commercial stations, um, but having a reasonable civil discussion. I like to think the discourse is high level about historical advantages and disadvantages of the mess and how you approach it. So we put Christopher Columbus on a bit of a pedestal. Do you think he deserves it? What we know about Columbus is still a little bit hazy to us. You know, the, the, we're talking about uh, history that goes back. In fact, I wrote a book about Jewish humor called um, Let There Be Laughter, and I even made reference to Columbus because there are a lot of Jews who would like to claim Columbus as having been Jewish. Uh, it would sort of say, look, we really belong here, you know, <laughs> if the discoverer of the country uh, found... But, you know, he was doing things for Isabella and Ferdinand, who were the ones who expelled the Jews from Spain in the 15th century, same year Columbus discovered America, supposedly. But did dis Columbus discover America? No. America was discovered long before that man from Genoa, as little as we know about him, and we don't know a whole hell of a lot. Uh, was he a man of his times? Yes, which means he was probably a, uh, on the wrong side of so many things. Uh, and what we know, particularly from some of the diaries, is he was on the wrong side of many things. But does that mean you completely uproot history and take away all credit? He was very consequential. There's no doubt about it. But what do you think about the, the, the way we've honored or failed to honor indigenous people in this country? I represent... Um, the sec uh, of all the congressional districts in America, full disclosure, I had the second most Indian tribes of anyone, except I know for Don you do. Young in, in Alaska. Yeah. So I've got a lot of Indian country, and, and uh, I don't think Columbus Day is a big hit in, uh, in, in many of the Indian well, there may Native be a compromise. American communities that there, I represent. There may, there may be some, but you've hit on another major theme in my life, because uh, before I wrote this book on Jewish humor, I wrote a book about honor, and a very serious uh, book about honor, what needs to be honored, what is dishonored, uh, different cultural approaches to honor, and so forth. Uh, and there's a trajectory in the book about how our American culture and American civilization and the West has moved away from traditional ideals of honor that we held sacred. And it says in the Declaration of Independence, our, we pledge our sacred honor. So uh, in the book, I talk about the importance of honoring indigenous people, honoring uh, Native Americans, honoring American Indians, you know, uh, and, and so many other people who need to be honored for their contribution to this country who have been overlooked, who have been essentially shamefully uh, and regretfully. Not we don't really have to. a day where we do that in this country. No, Thanksgiving don't. kind of presented a, a very inaccurate caricature of, uh, That's right. of our history with Native Americans. We had a fight for... Um, you know, to make Cesar Chavez's birthday a holiday. We had a fight uh, uh, for a long time to make Martin Luther King's right. birthday a holiday. And they were significant not in terms of those individuals who were flawed like any iconic figure and so forth, but they were significant because they were saying something about the Latino contribution and the black or African-American contributions in a larger sense. Mm -hmm. One of the things I love about any conversation with you is we cover a lot of ground. I'm having fun with the range of this discussion. And so I think to wrap it up, this is the time of year where I always curse daylight savings time. 
I like it when we spring ahead. I hate it when we fall back. You, you must put, have covered you this on one of your You put forth a legislative shows. bill, right? Uh, there, there <laughs> I've thought about it. No, there are people who I, I have covered, and there are people who advocate doing away with the daylight savings time. Um, yep. They're out there. There's a kind of, uh, I don't know, um, pretty uh, active group. Uh, you can find them probably on Twitter or Facebook. I understand your concern about it. I have some of the same misgivings, and and uh, and yet there's something about it that almost seems um, traditional that keeps us in sync in a strange way. I'm not I'm not speaking about this as an advocate, you know, because I understand your consternation. I feel it sometimes myself when it gets dark, uh, darker earlier. Well, what's so the pulse of your listeners on this? You must hear from people every year uh, when this happens. Well, Do you get the seasonal affected disorder <laughs> folks, or is everybody happy? Uh, I wouldn't say everybody's happy. You do get the people, and, and when you take up a topic like that, you're much more apt. It's a self-selective topic. You know, people who feel like you do will be more apt to be the callers who will weigh in on it or send the email or go on to Facebook. I, I don't know that I sense that there's a groundswell or a populist movement out there, to tell you the truth. Um, but you can be a leader here since you have such passionate okay. feelings about it, and you are a leader. <laughs> well, uh, this time of year, I start to have more passionate feelings about it, and we'll see, uh, we'll see what we do. It's great to have you on the show, Michael. Is, was there anything else that uh, you want the constituents of the 2nd District to know? Well, there may be a calling for your congressman as term, in terms of broadcast journalism if uh, <laughs> he ever hangs it up, which I know many of you feel and hope uh, zealously that he doesn't. Um, there, you know, th- these two issues that I talked about at the Raphael Theater when we did a broadcast uh, here in Marin continue to weigh, I think, on your district's minds. And I'm talking about, obviously, uh, traffic and, um, yeah. and homelessness. But there are so many other things. Uh, you know, Marina's remained a bubble, and uh, many people like that and want that to be the case. They obviously want to keep development. Uh, they want to keep, um, uh, especially when you're talking about an issue like homelessness, they want to keep people from breaking the NIMBY codes and so forth. And these are tr- difficult issues. These are, in fact, um, I would say, because the population continues to grow because the issues of traffic continue to grow with it and homelessness, um, you've got your work cut out for you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're tough issues. Yeah. Um, well, let's let's take them up on KQED Forum sometime. And in the meantime, I hope uh, everybody listening to my podcast will continue to follow Michael Krasny on Forum. Thank you very much for honoring me with uh, your presence here on my show. Thank you for honoring me with the invite. I appreciate that, too. So we'll close out this podcast with a question from uh, constituents who have uh, joined us on social media. Christy asks, for a long time, as she says, I've thought there should be a national holiday honoring first responders. Uh, and picking that date, of course, is a tough call. But the events of this week, and she's referring, of course, to the mass shooting in Las Vegas, uh, suggest October 1st as a possible date. I think that's a great idea, Christy. Uh, having a, a day to honor our first responders uh does seem totally appropriate. And I was just talking to Michael Krasny about one of the holidays that uh, is a little more vexing, Columbus Day, because uh, we have an ongoing debate about whether we're properly honoring indigenous people or even dishonoring indigenous people with the way we have celebrated Columbus Day in the past. So I think this is a a worthy conversation. Uh, I'll take a look at it, and I appreciate your suggestion. And with that, I want to thank everybody for joining me. We will see you next time.
Off the Cuff is produced by Marin's own Tales Untold Media. Our music is also local, provided by Temp Love. Don't miss out on future episodes of Off the Cuff. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Just search for Off the Cuff with Jared Huffman. 